0: How's it going comrades? You are listening to Historically, a show where we debug myths and misinformation taught to you in the schools and on corporate media. My name is JD and we are joined today by my co-host Isha and Rosalyn Constantino. We are going to be talking about how U.S. policies in Guatemala from the 1950s and anti-communist CIA actions as well as... A, obvious genocide, and how this has set the stage for modern Guatemala that we're seeing right now. Um, the United States has financed several counterinsurgency from the 1950s up until the 19, mid-1980s. Guatemala was under extreme right-wing rule.
1: So, c- c- can you tell me what you teach?
2: Yes, I'm a professor at Penn State of um, Spanish Women's Studies, uh, which is now Women's... um, Oh God, here we go. I'm a professor of Women's Studies, Gender and Sexuality Studies, and Latin American Studies as well as Spanish.
1: I I guess most people don't understand what it is, but what exactly is, like, do you learn in gender and sexuality studies? Well,
2: in women's women's gender and sexuality uh, studies, you learn about the... It it takes a look at the systems of power that exist within social organization. Um, So within a feminist framework, you take apart what seems to be almost the, the invisible uh, systems that organize us as a society and um, control us, uh, that go from everything from our uh, identity within a religious group. You know, we, we look at different identities that we claim for ourselves and also how those identities have been formed. Uh, we look at the founding texts of our society that somehow bring truth, supposed truth and naturalness to uh, who we are and what we're supposed to do. And we start to see that the arbitrariness of a lot of those systems. So that um, my students, this is, I'm doing an introductory course right now. They're Learning how patriarchy reproduces itself through all the systems that our society Utilizes in order to function, but also in order to keep certain groups in power and other groups
1: not Oh oh my yeah, I I hope I'm not out of my depth But I've noticed um, in India at least there's like a very stark example of patriarchy reproducing itself um, and it's done through the mother-in-law. Like, yeah. uh, and um, uh, so the mother-in-law uh, usually controls the daughter-in-law, but it doesn't, uh, but when you look at a house, you look like, oh my God, she's the head of the house, yeah. but she's there to protect her sons. Yes.
2: Yes. That, that there are the kinds of situations. That's an example of a situation in which um, you really need to take, there's a lot of contradictions and it's very complex So it's not as simple as uh, starting out with the family, which is the smallest unit within a society. It's not just that the father's in charge or the mother in law is in charge, and that explains everything. It's very complex. And it's true that even in non, uh, I know in India that the mother-in-law, and it does also in many other cultures where she is in the position of protecting her son, and which can be very difficult for um, a young bride, um, however, the, w- one of the things that we look at is collaboration amongst women um, and how women can become part of the perpetuation of the negative discriminatory uh, ideas, norms, and processes. Uh, so we do both. Yeah, we both resist and we contribute.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, I've seen women contribute, and this is, again, through personal experience, and I feel, so, please tell me if I'm being dumb or out of my depth. Oh, no, don't say that. <laughs> okay. Um, like wh- When I was working in a law firm, I noticed that th- there was a few secretaries, and the male la- la- lawyers had zero problems with them every single female lawyer always had a problem with them. So it's a very common trope in many law firms that certain staff members are nice to the men but not the women. Yeah. Yes, and that has to do with, I think, um, I think that you can see a similarity
2: between that and what we're talking about now uh, at at the national level uh, against, uh, within sexes, within genders. And um, it's a similar... A, a situation where those who have the power and if you have clawed your way to that power, and I don't mean clawed in a negative way, just that you worked really hard. Um, there's a, there's a sense of competition. I mean, capitalism is based on competition. So competition is what keeps us very often from, from being able to be uh, more humane with each other and putting us in a, in a, in a more, uh, you over me, kind of a a situation, you know?
1: um, So transitioning this to Guatemala, can you just, for most people, they don't have any idea of who lives there. So can you just give them like a basic atlas, like demographics, like like, who lives there, what languages they speak? Mm -hmm. Well, the
2: um, Guatemala is comprised of 23 different groups of indigenous peoples that uh, all are listed under the name Mayan, but they're actually different groups. They speak different languages and um, that is the large portion. Well, it had been over the last few years, numbers have changed. But when I started working there in 2005, it was one of the countries in which the indigenous was the majority of the population, the indigenous peoples, and that's slightly changing. Um, and it's it's always a guess when they do the census, but that's the largest. That's one of the largest groups. And then there are the groups that came along with the European settlers. So people of uh, Western European, uh, German, Spanish uh, descent. And then there's a very large population that is a mixed population um, where they can be maybe uh, from their heritage, they they mix both the Hispanic which is Spain and the indigenous, and um, they're called Ladinos. Um, okay, um, the power is all in the hands of a very elite group um, that, and it's a very small group, and they are not indigenous people
1: ever. Yeah. So can you talk about what was the government like before 1954? And can you talk about the 1954 coup that kind of led to the Civil War? Yes. Well, what happened
2: was in the 1800s, when um, Guatemala became a, when, when the, the colony, the colonial period was over when Spain gave up uh, Central America, Um, Guatemala was ruled by different groups in different areas. But at the end of the 1800s, the United States started to look around in the early 1900s of places where raw materials and our agricultural products could uh, flourish for the benefit of the U.S. economy. And Guatemala was one of those places. So it was really in the earlier part of the 20th century that uh, the U.S. took an interest. And it was mainly through United Fruit Company. Uh, Guatemala is the country from which the expression the banana republic came from. So there were dictatorships and strongmen that were put into place way before um, the 1954 uh, coup, the CIA back coup, and it was it, the government really was the United Fruit Company. They owned the by far the largest percentage of the land, and the largest percent, uh, like 75 percent of the, um, and that's the number that comes to mind of uh, arable land. Um, and they built all the infrastructure. And because because they wanted to be able to get their product out, right, to be able to, uh, com- all those things n- necessary for economic growth. And so the roads and the ports, um, and it was a plantation-based economy at that point. And, um, but as time went on, uh, the, the people were becoming less and less tolerant of the abuses of the plantation-style uh, governments, and people by the by the late uh, '30s and '40s, farmers, especially, well, people who needed to grow food, um, began to 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 uh, make their voices heard. And in 1944, you had the first democratically elected president. Uh, and from 44 to 54, you have these two presidencies, Arbenz being the second one, in which they attempted to take some of the land back from the uh, United Fruit. Oh, okay. Um,
1: oh, sorry. That's too much? No, 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 no. It's just fine. I definitely wanted that. But uh, while you were talking about it, it kind of reminded me uh, to ask this question. A follow-up question. So you said that the United Fruit was the government of Guatemala? De facto. I know, de facto. So can you explain, like, is it because they bribed the officials or did they hire... Like, how did they control the government?
2: Well, they had all the economic power and they would put people in these posts of of leadership uh, that were... More like we use the word puppets. You know, they mm-hmm. were puppets of United Fruit, and United Fruit was def- was plugged into the United States government very directly, with yep. uh, with the Dulles brothers, who one was Secretary of State, and one was one of the lawyers for the government, and they yeah, were. Pub- yeah, yeah. Right. So, yeah, in that way, they controlled it. And because it was plantation based, a lot of this control was at the local level.
1: I I guess a lot of people who live in New York City and things don't quite understand plantation based. Um, Oh,
2: okay. A plantation is where you have a mass of workers uh, in slave conditions, uh, slave like conditions. That's how it it has functioned, who work um, in a, a, a... in a uh, economic activity that uh, produces no uh, benefit to them in the sense it's not something that grows uh, for the benefit of the community. It's In this case, it's growing bananas. In Cuba, it was growing sugar. Um, and so there's no internal growth of the society, no modernization. And people were left as a plantation, you have a you know like on the United States. It's it's similar to Southern plantations where they grew cotton. That would be a, a, a perfect analogy.
1: That's a perfect uh, definition. I didn't know you're right. Yes, yeah. but in
2: this case, they didn't have sl- they didn't own slaves, so they would. There were such a a, a plenty the, the, pl- uh, workers were plentiful, and it was cheaper for them to work people to death, not feeding them. Than it, uh, and replacing them than it was to really take care of them. So conditions got really dire in a lot of these plantations.
1: Um, did the United Fruit control the currency values at all to kind of keep the wages low?
2: Well, there were no wages. You were given a place to live. That's it. You were given a place to live and a certain amount of food. It was a plant. It was, it,
1: and I have to say, I can't talk about currency because I'm not familiar <laughs> with that. Oh, okay, um, so we don't even have to go that complicated. Then, oh no! Literally, they were not given wait, and this no. happened till 1954? No, no, 40.
2: nineteen fifty four. No, forty four. Well, it,
1: it it happened. I mean, it, the plantations survived
2: uh, the Democratic, uh, we we called it the Democratic Spring from forty the ten years of Democratic Spring of forty four to fifty four, because we they still produced bananas. And, um, and even after, uh, they lost total control, um, that system lasted as long as bananas are being, I mean, the whole idea of the banana, and it's a really interesting story because they, um, United Fruit actually manipulated the taste for bananas in the United States, uh, by the way that they, uh, the way they produced them and shipped them and, uh, advertise them on television. So it was a huge business. And th- then there were the side businesses that had to do with the transportation, the shipping, um so there were other uh, economic activities that that went around this, but the the people working on the plantations got none of it.
1: Oh okay. I guess I thought they, they were given like very small wages that just barely sustained them, but this no. is wow. And so what happened in 1954?
2: Well, in 54, when uh, Arbenz decided that, that the United Fruit, well, not in 54, but before 54, that United Fruit had to give some of this land back because they had a large percentage of their land, which is a huge chunk of the uh, arable land in Guatemala, and people were starving. He said he offered to pay them uh, for that land. Of course, what he did was offer to pay them the price that they were claiming the land was worth every time they paid taxes, and that didn't go over too well because that wasn't really the worth, but he wanted to pay them. He wasn't uh, just appropriating, reappropriating that land, but there's this sense that if you give away a little power, you're going to lose it all, so mm-hmm. United know absolutely refused, and the U.S., because of the high level of people involved and because of the importance of. United Fruit, um, both the influence and its importance, Um, the United States wasn't going to have it. And this was also the beginning of the the Cold War. And, you know, uh, one can judge how much communism um, really played a role in their ideas. But the U.S., because of the influence, both as an economic entity and politically, the influence of United Fruit, which had like I said, parts within the, you know, people in the government who were interested in this, there was no way that that the U.S. government was going to let this happen. In fact, there's a recreation in Pamela Yates' film um, When Mountains Tremble uh, of the dinner that the U.S. ambassador had with um, Arbenz. And he said, you either shape up or we're coming down. Um, they they were given an ultimatum. They knew that the United States wasn't going to stand for this, but Arbenz was absolutely um, dedicated to these reforms for the, the the large majority of the population. And uh, what I was saying too is that this coincided with the beginning of the Red Scare. So immediately, anything that looked like helping the people on the bottom was labeled as socialism and communism. And um, that was another reason. And the CIA—it was one of the CIA's first coups, uh, the overthrow of a government um, in order to put into place somebody more amenable to to U.S. interests.
1: U.S. always says it wants democracy, but then whenever there is a true democracy, people will always vote. To not be de- exploited by um, the American companies, yeah, and and so it, it's, it seems like it's the same pattern: Iraq, Iran, Guatemala. Yeah. It's like, yeah, they they, they they have a choice. Okay, with our choice, we want you guys to go away. That's yeah. the democracy part goes away. Like, uh, yeah. yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. It's a farce, and it's 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 based on the capitalist principle of profit and um and who gets to have the power. It, that's really what it comes down to. And, and Central America played an important role, too, because of its location. Mm-hmm. Um, we did not want the commies um, or any type of ideology that, that that was associated with it in our hemisphere. Our hemisphere, we, and this was said by presidents in the early 20th century, belonged to us. It was our backyard. We owned it. We were the ones who had the right to it. So that whole, uh, you know, the carrot and the stick um, uh, policies, there are a whole lot of policies you can trace in the early part of the 20th century that impacted not just Guatemala, but the other countries, including and importantly, Cuba.
1: Yep. Um so how bloody was the 1954
2: coup? Oh that it was um boy it was it was less bloody than it was just getting rid of I mean they took Arbenz from if I remember correctly out in his pajamas and put him on a plane and shipped him out of the country. Where did they send him? Uh I want to say Spain Okay, but they do. Or an African country. I can't remember because there's so many that have, this has happened to. And they just took over. But there was a, a rebellion against this and it actually happened in the late 50s. And it was people within the army themselves, soldiers, mm-hmm. who were not at all pleased with what was happening. Uh, and the, the the false premise upon which this takeover was had had occurred and there was an uprising and they were put down by their the, the the rest of the military um and that's in the 60s marks the period where um there's starting to be organization amongst groups that were not going to uh that that felt um began to resist it's the beginning oh,
1: okay so in um, the civil war, basically. It's not
2: really a civil war. And I, I I have to say that. I'm sorry to interrupt. No,
1: no, no, no. Go ahead. Tell because,
2: me. Because it was a war of the government and the U.S. on the people. Um, I just was reading something recently that someone said that the civil war really began in 80, 82 after the genocide. And... It, I don't, not quite sure, and I'm not a historian, but how you can call a civil war if it's not two sides within the country that are fighting? I agree. Uh, uh,
1: this, it, you it, know? It, it so really- they call
2: it. They call it. They don't call it a civil war. It's either called the armed uh, conflict or the internal war. They are the two phrases: la guerra, uh, el conflicto interno, or el conflicto. What to say? Um, armado interno. Uh-
1: Um, In in that case, we should call it the same. And it's actually a very fair point. Um, A lot of people, even today, make the mistake of calling Yemen a civil war, but it's not a civil war in the U.S. absolutely. So I'm I'm sorry. And thank you for correcting me, because our entire podcast is to decolonize our knowledge. And this is one great example. Mm. Um, So in the internal conflict, what were the sides that developed?
2: The um, the the army the the military and the economic elites were on one side, and the um, groups there were a, a variety of groups that uh, that became guerrilla groups, but they started out as. Um, um, Groups that were fighting for the autonomy of the workers, the strength of the workers, um, uh, to, to set up some kind of, they, they all wanted to have a say in, in, in that which was happening in their country. So there were several groups that eventually formed together and formed a, 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 an overarching group, which... Fire. Yeah, that, that would eventually um, have fract- factions within it that fought amongst themselves, as often happens with these kinds of, uh, of organizations. But, um, yeah, so it, it was the people on one side and the government on the other.
1: Uh, okay. Um, Which is uh, okay, backed
2: so, so- by the U.S.,
1: Okay, so the people on the against the U.S. are there? Can can they, they were fuerzas armadas rebel, rebel rebeldes? So uh-huh. So I I just call them FAR as a shorthand. Is yep. that okay? Yep,
2: absolutely. That's who they were.
1: Okay. Uh, one question: How did FAR get their weapons from? And did the U.S. deploy troops, or was it Guatemalan troops that the U.S. trained?
2: Both. Well, we didn't deploy troops. We deployed, in fact, uh, one of the most famous cases, Jennifer Harber's, Harberry's husband. She's an American and she married a Guatemalan. And um, there are cases of, of uh, her case and other cases of people who survived the torture and said that when they were being tortured, they were being tortured by military, um, the Guatemalan military. However, there would be in a room a, a person who was in charge of them, who spoke Spanish with a very strong English accent. They couldn't see these people because they were often blindfolded, but the presence of U.S. officials uh, military officials within, um, actually on the ground, has been documented. And and the the um, money for arms and arms itself for the military uh, came from the U.S. But the training, the School of the Americas, which trained um, counterinsurgency groups throughout Latin America, uh, one of the first groups that they did was um, was uh, in Panama. That's where they first established it. It's now, it, it was moved up to Fort Benning and then other bases in the US. But Rios Montt, for instance, the man who was convicted of genocide, the, the general, uh, for his 82, 83 school
1: earth. So President Ronald Reagan was elected and he gave a lot of aid to the Guatemalan government. Yes. And this particular government was extremely brutal in the 80s. Can you talk about that?
2: Well, in 82, uh, Efrain Rios Montt, who was an evangelical preacher, who had spent time in the United States uh, with the church, where he became an evangelical, took over um, a coup. There was a coup, and he took power in 82. And um, he is on tape saying that they needed to get rid of the bad seed. He is on tape saying that um, they needed to clean up society uh, and this is a man who's an evangelical and he started the scorched earth policy
1: oh, What is um, scorched earth?
2: was, was uh, the, the result of that and and the, the war Wait. general the scorched earth was rios mont's um military campaign and what they did in the scorched earth is that they raised totally communities and killed everybody there that's what they they would burn all the crops they would burn down the buildings and they would massacre and um the the, there were 600 and some massacres 660 and there were 430 cities villages that were wiped off the map
0: hello everyone this is sound editor ted want to say thank you for listening to part one and stay tuned for part two after this message
1: and the cost of producing and recording we need your help please become a patron it is as cheap as five dollars a month and you get exclusive access to all our patron only content to become a patron go to http colon www.patreon.com slash historic underscore lee People familiar with our show may remember Dos Eres, yes. where there was only two survivors, and yes. Dos Eres was one of the six hundred and fifty. Exactly. right? Exactly, yes. Okay, so there was also another extremely brutal aspect um, near the town of Sepuzarco, Mm-hmm. that Sepur uh-huh. Um and it hasn't gotten a lot of attention. So in 1982, like what was constructed in Sepur Sarko?
2: A military base was constructed and this was up in the um, Alta Pass, which is one of the northern areas and in it was a military base that was constructed for, to serve as a recreational site for soldiers. So the military would come in for, I think it was like 18 days or 19 days. They would do these turns to just hang out and have a good time. And um, what happened was having a good time and, and recreation, uh, sex was a part of that. So what they did was they would take women from the communities around Sepur Sarco. Um, uh, oftentimes they would kill the husbands. They would quote unquote, disappear the husbands, take the women, bring them to the base where they were forced as sexual slaves and domestic slaves. So they had to cook and clean and they had, uh, they, they were available for mass rapes. Um, and some women were there for six months and then they were allowed to go back to their homes where they would still cook. Uh, for the people at the base, and they would have to be available for men on patrol, soldiers on patrol, so the rapes continued. Um, sometimes their children were kept outside of the uh, uh, the base. Uh, there are different stories about what happened to their children, uh, and they were a lot of this happened in view of the children. But these stories came to light uh, specifically in nineteen. 19- uh, no, two thousand and eleven, when fifteen women from that area, the Chi uh, uh, Mayan group, came forward and told their stories of what happened at that base. And um, actually, they came forward a little bit sooner than that. And, and uh, a group of of women uh, to, who supported them helped them to write the act, write down the history, to document this history. And they actually documented it. With a visual aspect, it's an audiovisual documentation.
1: Yep, and uh, we'll put it, the link on in the bottom, but it's in the, on the United Nations website.
2: Yes, it is, and because the United Nations in two, in the early mid two thousands uh, formed along with the with the government with the Guatemalan government, they formed a group uh, that was a commission to uh, um, deal with impunity to end impunity in Guatemala it, it's it's letters are cc and cc was uh, a un uh, because the impunity has really been part of the problem uh, and i know we're jumping ahead what, what is impunity Let's go back. oh impunity is that you are never held responsible oh. for, for okay. crimes and that's an important part f- to understand uh, Guatemala and many other countries that,
1: uh, yeah,
2: including ours, that you're, you're never held accountable. So, um, but last week, so these women's stories, what, what, I forget where we were.
1: We were talking about how the, in 1982, they built a recreational facility Yes, and the soldiers would like kidnap some women and forced uh, them to have sex. And
2: 15 women came forward and worked with a group that formed from uh, women's grassroots organizations and national organizations came together to form an alianza. And it was an alianza to uh, end the silence. Uh, 2009 they formed an alianza, an, an alliance to end the silence and impunity was a, a group of um, national and community-based women's organizations. And some of them, like Luz Mendes, um who is the head of the uh, Guatemalan, she was a lawyer, they helped to write the court case for these 15 women. This is how...
1: Okay, let's go back. Can you give me a brief e- summary of what the 15 women said or even like what one of them said?
2: Oh, yes. I, I They were brutally raped regularly, kept there, um, and uh, they survived. So these are women who survived months or years of sexual abuse, of rape, and of domestic slavery. um, uh, This was open, this was, was, uh, Sepur Sarko functioned, that base functioned until 1988. So from 82 to 88, women were still being utilized in that way there
1: how young was the youngest woman
2: i don't remember what their ages were when they, they these were 18 20 maybe younger than that because yeah. women were raped from like four, from women were raped as from all ages uh, i mean and but as sexual slaves i'm going to um you have a do you have a figure there
1: yeah the youngest was around
2: 11? Oh, nine. Okay, so the ages went from nine to the 20s, although they raped grandmothers, you know, but I, but for this sexual slavery, and th- th- I mean, this was such a blatant use of rape as a weapon of war, um, along with rape in the genocide, that it, it really has uh, taken on a life of its own. It was the first time, the prosecution of the men involved with this was the first time in all of the Americas that such a war crime was prosecuted in the home country.
1: Okay, um, you brought up a very interesting thing about how they raped grandmothers. Uh, and that to me is just to punish the villagers for not behaving properly. It was that, like, did it happen just in support of Zarko, Or was Oh well, it- No, no,
2: no, no. Rape was widespread all over. Um, there's, uh, uh, Let's see how I can talk about this. Rape was part of their training. They learned how to rape as part of the counterinsurgency. And rape served many purposes, to degrade. Women were raped while they were tortured. Women were raped before they were killed. They were raped in order to um, mix their, quote unquote, the seed, get rid of the bad seed. Uh, um, that, they were the words of Rios Mont. And and he was so. Uh, it just amazes me, Asha, how he was able to say these things on television. And Pamela Yates, I really recommend people see two of her films. One is When the Mountain Trembles, and Regoberta Menchu is in that. She she films Rigoberta, um, and the second and, and the second film, um, which even has more footage in it. Um, what is called how to nail a dictator
1: okay um and after after the interview if you if you stay for the extra i will play the clip um of uh what's his name again
2: rios Mont.
1: yeah rios Montt and ronald reagan talking about this like yeah on cnn something like cnn on national tv yeah. I, I found a clip like that so um, well ronald reagan
2: and george wh bush Um, and it's interesting that we're having this talk this week, Um, both called Rios Mont a great leader doing wonderful things down there.
1: From my understanding, the Guatemalan cases like came to light around somewhere in the late 90s. In between that period of like 20 to 25 years, what happened to these soldiers? Like, did they go back to society and nothing happened or what? Well, yes, the, the, um, in
2: the, in the late eighties, early nineties is when they started to get together to, um, with the help of the UN, um, to work on the peace accords, but the fighting lasted until the war really wasn't over until 96. So your question, um, is what happened to the soldiers? But like when they were decommissioned mm-hmm. and they were given a money, Or other goods like land, uh, if they turned in their guns, but all of these soldiers, as well as including the um, guerrillas, were gave up their guns supposedly, and or just left the military. They were no longer in the military, and you had there were nine hundred and ninety thousand soldiers if I'm not mistaken, wait a minute, I wrote that down, Um, 900, just tens of thousands of soldiers who were trained uh, for counterinsurgency, and now they're out without a job. So what the smarter ones did was um, they began to take over types of organizations that did illicit um, commerce, such as drugs, Others started their own security companies um, and they weren't in security companies for the average person. They were security companies for um, their own, the people who started the war and were involved with the war. And and the guns flowed. There were just so many guns now. And the uh, uptick in in violence against women is marked by the end of the war it starts to really show up in the after the signing of the peace accords in 96 so these guys and some of them were were drafted into service as young as 16 15 14 and this is all they knew was that kind of violence and it was a brutal violence like you you, you've explained The brutality, which we won't go into here, anyone can read about it, uh, is just mind-boggling. And so now they're all circulating without jobs. And so femicide goes up the killing of women just because they're women um, and gang membership goes up because a lot of these young men don't have jobs and they don't have a community anymore. I mean, and, and they don't have any other skills besides shooting. Yeah, they haven't been trained for anything. Exactly. And one of the things I wanted to mention, Esha, is that one of the ways that communities got broken up um, and separated one of the early ways was by leveling them and the massacres. But another way is they would go around to the towns in the rural areas and pull um, men and boys into forced service. Mm. These were called patrols, and these patrols um, were supposed to tell on each other. You know, keep. Uh, sometimes they were patrolling their own um, their own communities and if you're patrolling a community and something goes on and you don't report it you can you're tortured and killed and in order to prove your your allegiance to the to the government to the the patrol boys were forced
1: at times to rape their own sisters and their mother it's amazing you tell me that because um, in the echo civil war, um, that's exactly how, how, and that also, more than allegiance, it serves as a way of making sure they'll never get accepted back into the community.
2: Yes. And it breaks the community. Absolutely. Yes. So those kinds, or you had to kill, you had to kill someone in your family or your community. And uh, the the trauma, I mean, you could have a, an entire podcast on the after effects of these kinds of wars and this, these kinds of tactics, because psychologists are studying it and we expect people to just come out of it. We, we don't think about that. So when we're looking at people who have left Guatemala and are at the border, it's the trauma, the trauma that the women who, who came forward on the, on the Sepor se Sarco is so profound yeah
1: and let's just remember this is the trauma that the u.s government caused so it is our uh, responsibility Yes. Uh, when they come to the border.
2: I, I want to say one other thing about that, and this is really important, because um, as I would teach before the internet really became a, a source, uh, a resource, when I would teach about the School of the Americas and their involvement in Latin America, the training uh, to kill um, the existence of manuals that that mm-hmm. had never been found, so there was no quote unquote direct link. No,
1: actually, p- now they are f- found
2: public in, record in Uruguay. In Uruguay, in some library or or collection, someone found the one of the manuals, and I don't know if it's the only one that's been found, but it stopped at that point. Any um any uh, ability of this, of the government to deny what they were teaching these people, uh, these men. And um, another thing that has been extremely helpful, and I would say to your listeners, uh, uh, it is a place that they can go and check so that I say this so that people don't look at me like I'm making it all up on some crazy lefty. Oh, no, we're all... Um, no, but, we're uh, but I've had students, here. I've had students whose political background comes from an, you know, uh, they've mm-hmm. never been taught this and it's a hard thing for people to, to come to grips with. Mm-hmm. But, um, oh, I forget what I was going to say. Oh, yeah, the, when, when the National Security Archives uh, started to release declassified material, and it was available on the web, you can go and see the uh, cables, for instance, between the CIA and the people in Guatemala, the the men on the ground in Guatemala, both Guatemalans and U.S. CIA. And once you have that document, it, it doesn't leave room to say this never happened. Um, and I think that's been an important part for those of us in the United States to come to to come to to be able to deal with the reality, our great country that is so generous and so kind, but has this other background, and that explains so much of what's happening, and we can't overlook it.
1: Okay. Um, so you're absolutely right. So the first woman came forward. What, what happened between the first woman co- coming forward and the start of a tr- the trial?
2: Well, the women uh, first actually just formed a group. And in uh, March of 2011, during the, um, the day, International Women's Day, They have a week long of uh, festivities in uh, Guatemala, not festivities, but meetings and gatherings and workshops in Guatemala City and all over the country. So in Guatemala City, that is, uh, I remember because I happened to have been there, uh, 2010 it was, March 5th, that they brought forward um, the idea of the tribunal. It was not yet a uh, case in the courts, it was a tribunal of women who were saying this happened. And some of them were lawyers like Luz Mendes, uh, the head of the Guatemala, the Union of uh, Guatemalan Women. Um, and they, so it was, it was constructed in a way that simulated a court case, because at that time, that's all they could get. Uh, but it was huge, and the women under again didn't their their identities were changed, or they they gave their testimony um, behind you know uh, behind anonymously, and um, then uh, it took a little time, took a, like another year before they were able to actually file the case in the uh, in, in the court of. Uh, I don't know how you translate this into English. Oh. It's the uh, alta, alta, alto riesco, which is like the, the uh, it's called the
1: higher court. Yeah, high court.
2: The high, the high court, yes. Yeah. Um, which loses some of that i that riesco meaning. It's the most dangerous, the most risky, mm-hmm. uh, the riskiest cases, and um, and it, it took. Luckily, the CC this international UN organization, UN Guatemalan organization, um, was able to do the, the, the case, the women had to hide, hide, it was just so high profile around the world. People were watching this and, um, and they convicted two men for one of the men, um, was a colonel and he, uh, got 80 years, I believe, um, for, um, for sexual, for rape, sexual abuse, and domestic abuse, and
1: it, it's a war crime. He also got it for. And then
2: there was yes. Then there was he. Altogether, he got like 120 years. Good because he got 30 years for uh for the sexual part of it, and then he got for war crimes. Um, he got another 90 years of yeah yeah exactly and then the other man was uh that was a commissioner who got that but a colonel was also um was also convicted and this was huge this was just i can't even say and the and the judge in this case is alone someone who um is worth getting to know more about for your listeners and her name is um Yasmin barrios mm-hmm. she's the same judge Uh, And I think the courage she must have had, and plus the security she must have had, she's the one who convicted Rios Montt of genocide, the uh, ex-dictator, president of genocide. And so uh, the work that she did was phenomenal.
1: I think he's probably one of the few um, people who have been tried in his own home. He
2: was the first. Uh, uh, yeah, if and if I'm right. not mistaken, he is the first uh, uh, committer of genocide to be tried and convicted in his own country. Yeah. What I would add, Esha, um, uh, is that the one of the people who was subject, uh, several people have been convicted in this court and in other courts, but one of the people who has been subject to very, um, a lot of pressure from the economic elites and the military elites and the powerful elites to put, uh, uh, to clamp down on uh, Barrios, she was, um, she, they tried to force her out, but the, the president now, uh, Moreno, oh gosh, I can't think of his name, it's okay. but the president now has j- announced that when CIC's, uh signed commission is up in January, it's not gonna be renewed. So the ability to, to uh, initiate and carry through on these high level investigations is gonna be done. And it's also part of that is because he's involved. And so I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that the US, as has been the case, is still very involved in the government in, in, in Guatemala and, and selecting who and helping those who they want to be in power.
1: Oh, yeah. The US has also been doing these sneaky judicial coups. So, for example, in Brazil, they have Sergio Mora. who,
2: and I know.
1: <laughs> and, and then after he convicted Lula, his opponent, he was uh, now the justice minister. I know. So, no,
2: it is the US. Um, when I was in Guatemala in 2011 for a Fulbright, that year they built seven, they opened seven military bases in Guatemala, which is what, the size of Arkansas?
1: Um, American government built 17 g- military bases? Seven. Seven, oh, okay. No,
2: seven new ones.
1: So, oh, oh, okay. Oh and
2: then God. if you look at a map, if you look up ba- uh, U.S. bases in Latin America, and you look at the timeline, we have spread them out through um, Colombia, Chile. I mean, they, we've, we have them all over. We have bases all over, and we have started to go down there and train people in their countries, the police and the army. And when Lula formed the Pact of the Southern Cone, the the economies, they had their own free trade agreement um, and wouldn't let the U.S. in. The U.S. has since then, you know, 10 years ago, been attempting to break that up. And one by one, they have special forces, um, and, 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 and intelligence groups in these countries. And they're doing exactly what you just said, um, that has happened in Brazil.
1: So what can, we the people do, since this is still ongoing, to help with justice in Guatemala.
2: Okay, that's a really good question, and I would have a couple of points that come to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is to know your history and to share that history with other people.
1: Share this podcast, everyone. Okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> especially considering the grandstanding and the tragedy that's happening on the border right now that is directly related to the condition we have left Central America in. We have the what we call the triangle of violence, right? Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, where the level of violence is so high that people are willing to... Well, anyway, it's the violence, the lack of a, a way to make a living. Uh, we kind of wrecked it and then just walked away. So it, you need to know the story and p- please share the story with other people to help them understand why these families are on that border and why they walk thousands of miles to get there in, in really difficult. So that's one thing. And the second thing is, um, I think it's really important to read about the, um, especially the women who have done organizing and come into leadership and formed um, groups within the country in order to replace what should have been civic life. Because civic life didn't exist. There is no that sense of community and, and, and the social networking that the government usually helps to establish for different institutions. That's been taken over by or been built, uh, an alternative has been put into place since the return of the refugees uh, and since the civil, the, the, uh, the the peace accords, or before the peace accords, actually. Look and see who these women are, like the women of S- uh, Sepor Sarko. And you will be amazed. I was amazed when I went to the first, my first um, International Women's Day event, which was a, 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 like a parade Um, Or a a march, that's what it was, to see all the different groups, to see how they articulated. the. These are people with very little education, articulated the, the moment of time, the political issues. I just hadn't seen anything like that in the U.S., and it made me. It that's when I dropped all my other work and started to work in Guatemala, because I knew that we were responsible for go- what was going on there. That was one thing. I was studying the femicide, which was her, which is horrific. It, at one point, Guatemala was the most dangerous place in the world to be a woman. But I also was interested in how these women were offering an alternative. Um, Way of of being as a society or as a small group, um,
1: and how? Do, w- what did they offer? I know it's a lot, but can you like? Maybe I'll give you one example. Okay.
2: Um, there, the the medical system does not um, uh, does not extend to the masses of the people, mm-hmm. and um, things like being able to give birth, uh, women the the maternal the maternal death rate. Um, um was is was extremely high women who were m- many of birth, many births are are assisted by how do you say comadronas? your D- doulas no not a doula the other one um Midwife. Midwife. Thank you. Yes, the the comadronas, the midwives, decided to um, that they needed more training because there was a there's a lot of new medicine and new ways of doing things, and they wanted to be able to train. So, with the help of the government, at one point where the government was actually interested in helping, they set up these uh these centers. Like there was there's one in um, in uh, Ce where the, co- the, the women come together and other women come in to train them, or men. Medical people come in, uh, other other midwives with, with a lot of scientific and medical knowledge come in, and they train these women. They, they bring them in from the regions, from the faraway states and towns. They get a training, and this goes on for a period of time to, the, to where they got a point got to a point that the government actually gave them a certificate saying that they were they were uh, authorized and had the training to assist a birth
1: it was huge i know uh, and is there a website people can go to to see the efforts related to bringing justice to Guatemala? I would say the one
2: place is the English version of UNAMG, which is the Union of Guatemalan Women. It's spelled U-N-A-M-G. That is one uh, good site. Uh, There are other good sites. I would just have to see what were the English and the Spanish. um, There's the there used to be a, a group that was very powerful, the Sector de Mujeres, the women's mm-hmm. sector. Um, I don't know, a lot of them have lost funding, uh, and this was established after the peace accords to have uh, in each state and in, in, in region to have a place that women could go for assistance. Uh, another, another interesting thing is how women have formed, when I first got there in 2005, there was one one uh, site that women could go to who were being abused, a uh, safe house, one in the whole country. Um, and then they started to build them a- around the country, but they, these were private organizations that were doing that. So off off the top of my head, the, there's just so many of them. I don't have-
1: uh, um, How do people find you on Twitter?
2: Twitter is um, at R, M is in Mary, C as in cold. Then my last name, O-S-T-A-N-T-I-N-O. R-M-C-O-S-T-A-N-T-I-N-O.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming here. And like you've been a treasure trove of knowledge and we really would love to have you back again and again. So um, we're probably going to invite you again in a few months. Oh, yes. No, I I, am... This is. I, I really appreciate the opportunity
2: to get this knowledge out there because we are more powerful as human beings, and we're more tied together. Our humanity is more expressed, better expressed, when we have facts and we can look um, at what has actually happened and why and then move forward from there. So thank you so much for allowing me this opportunity.
1: Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Esha. Okay, hasta luego. Hasta luego. Un besote.